Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. The hymn we just sang, How Sweet to Die, based on the dying words of the late Elder S.A. Payne in the state of Texas, is admittedly a very strange-sounding hymn to many people. Elder Payne, of course, was a primitive Baptist minister. And as far as I know, this hymn does not appear in any other hymnal except the hymnals within primitive Baptist circles. I can't imagine many modern denominations singing this song, How Sweet to Die. If you think about it, it's a very odd-sounding sentiment. How sweet to die. This morning, though, I want to speak about the Christian's unique perspective on death. And we'll come back and talk about this song, God willing, in just a moment. But I want to look at Philippians chapter 1, reading verses 20 and following as our text today. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, says the Apostle Paul, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. That is, I'm not sure. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Now, the apostle was in prison when he wrote this. Philippians is one of his prison epistles. And the church at Philippi has sent him a care package by the hands of a member of that church named Epaphroditus, as you will learn at the end of chapter 4, who has sought Paul out in Rome and found him where he's incarcerated and delivered the package to him. And Paul is writing a thank you letter to the church, which is the epistle of the Philippians. And he tells them in this letter how grateful he is. It's one of his most personable and transparent letters. It's not formal like his letter to the Galatians. He's not really speaking to them in the capacity of an apostle, even though he was an apostle. It's not an official proclamation, but it's a personal friendship thank you letter. Paul is saying thank you for your consideration of my needs while I'm in prison. Now, this was a monumental effort. Philippi was about 700 miles from Rome. And I can just see this church in conference voting to send a care package to the Apostle Paul. And you know, Paul, though he is beloved by many Christians today, was not beloved by very many Christians while he lived. <laughs> Paul was not a popular figure. In fact, he was frequently the center of controversy. He was uh, seen to be someone that they didn't want to show up. When you got a letter from Paul, it wasn't always a happy event, you know, until you found out the tone of the letter, whether it was positive or negative. 
And Philippi was one of the few churches that had a very close relationship with the Apostle Paul. So when they send him this care package, he's touched. And he tells them in the fourth chapter that he is so grateful, but yet he doesn't want to say thank you to the point that he, you know, obligates them or makes them feel obligated to help him again. He says, not that I speak in respect of want. In other words, I'm saying thank you, thank you, thank you, but I'm not saying it so that you will say, well, maybe we need to do this every month. He's saying, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I'm happy whether I have all and abound or whether I suffer lack, I'm still happy in the Lord. I'm getting along just fine, but still your gift touched me. He's telling them, thank you. And in this passage I've read in your hearing in Philippians chapter 1, we have one of the most transparent autobiographical passages from the pen of the apostle in all the New Testament. As he gives them a window into his own heart and mind, and he says, I want you to know how I am thinking about my future. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, verse 20, that is, I have a great and positive outlook on the future, that whatever happens, I will not have reason to be ashamed, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness. He says, I want you to pray for me, and this is my focus as I think about the future of my life. I don't want to do anything to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to be bold so that as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in me in my body, whether it be by life, that is, I want my life to magnify Christ, or by death. Whatever happens to me, he says, my one goal is that Christ would be glorified. And then listen to this text, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, that statement is just as surprising as the hymn by A.N. Whitten, he's the author, who took his hymn from the dying words of the late Elder S.A. Payne. How sweet to die, that sounds strange to the natural ear. So does to die as gain. A gain, of course, is a net positive. (laughs) Most people think to die is a net loss. But Paul says it's a net gain. To die is gain. And may I say that there are very few people who look at death like this. Now, Somebody once told me, you primitive Baptists talk way too much about death. I'm interested in living, not in dying. And that's what we ought to be focused on, somebody says. But the fact is, my beloved, the ultimate reality in this world is that our lives will come to an end. If Jesus tarries, every one of us will die. You say, well, I don't like to think about that. Well, one of the reasons primitive Baptists have a hymn like this in our hymnal this is what I've tried to explain to people when they say, this is very strange. This is so almost morbid. I don't like to think about it. How could anybody think like that? How sweet to die? One of the reasons is because we have a gospel, my friends, that deals with reality. It's not an escape from reality. It deals in the real world where real people live. And my beloved, may I say, though it's not popular in our politically correct and sentimental society to talk about death the bible talks about it at length and it reminds us that it is the wages of sin the ultimate reality and the end of all flesh unless jesus christ comes again 
and what is different from the Christian and the worldling, or between the biblical and the secular worldview, is this perspective on death. From a biblical perspective, my friends, we know that death is not the end, but it is simply a passageway for the children of God into that world where the sun will never set and no one will ever pass on again. How wonderful to anticipate a world where there are no more sad goodbyes, no more farewells, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. The Christian and the Bible believer has a different view of death entirely. Paul and Elder Payne are probably in perfect fellowship in heaven right now. How sweet to die, Elder Payne said. Paul said, indeed, amen, to die is gain. Because if your life is Jesus Christ right now, you see, to me, to live is Christ. What Paul is saying in that verse is that Jesus is everything to me in life. I live in Christ, I live by Christ, I live for Christ, I live unto Him. Life is defined in terms of fellowship with Jesus Christ right now. And if that was your main goal in this world, Paul, then death will be only more of that in a more perfect state. Do you see that? For to me to live is Christ, that's why he could say, and to die is gain, because death ushers him into the presence of Christ where he doesn't merely serve him and see him by faith, but now he sees and serves him by sight immediately in his very presence in heaven. Now death, we know, is the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Genesis 2.16, God said to Adam and Eve, In the day that thou eatest of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. My beloved, ever since then, the mortician has had an ample market. He's had job security. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the funeral director has had plenty of people to keep him in business. And it will be that way until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. But you see, there was one great event in history that gives the Christian hope. And that is Jesus Christ got up from the grave. He walked away from death. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is hope invading the darkness of this sinful world. It's blessed hope that our Lord Jesus Christ conquered death. Listen to this, Hebrews 2.14. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That is, he came where we were. He assumed a human nature. That through death, here's the reason he did that, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now we're talking this morning about the believer's unique perspective on death. And it's a perspective that is not limited to the believers in the New Testament, but even the saints of God in the olden times looked forward to something after this world. For instance, listen to Job's question, Job 14, verse 14. If a man die, shall he live again? Now, I dare say that's the $64,000 question. If a man die, shall he live again? You may know that the Edgar Allan Poe was haunted by that question. 
his poem, The Raven, deals with that issue. And of course, the backstory is that Poe's true love had died before they could be married. And he writes this poem talking about the grief and the despair that he felt in thinking that he would never see her again. That must be a reason for great despondency, wouldn't you think? To, to lose somebody you love and to think that you'll never see them again. You see, that's the perspective of the unbeliever. That's the perspective of this world. To the world, death is a tragic end. It's a full stop. It's the final chapter. To the believer, though, it's not the end of the book. It's the changing of one chapter to an eternal chapter where the story goes on forever and every page is better than the one before. Death, my beloved, is not the end, but to the secular thinker, death is a tragedy. How sweet to die is something that the worldling would never think about saying. He would say how horrifying it is to die, how upsetting it is to die, how utterly preposterous is death. And death, of course, is not natural. I mean, it wasn't intended to be this way. God made man to live forever. Had Adam obeyed God, he would have lived forever. But the encroachment of death on the scene of human history is the result of man's rebellion against God. The wages of sin is death. And God, of course, who is the creator, is the one who has given this covenant to Adam and he is the one from whom all blessings come. He's the origin of life. He's the source of life. And of course, he's a God, my friends, who doesn't just say, okay, I've, I owe you something, but he's the God who has authority over the world that he's made. He's the ultimate authority. So the unbeliever looks at death and he says, life is about me and death is a tragic end to that. It's the ultimate ending. But the believer says life is about Christ and death is simply the transition from this world, though it hurts and it's painful, yet the believer looks at it quite differently and says it ushers us into the presence of the one that loved us and gave himself for us never to part again. That's why Paul could say in the furtherance of this passage, I'm in a straight, S-T-R-A-I-T, a difficult place betwixt two. You've heard the old expression, I'm between a rock and a hard place. Well, that's basically what Paul is saying here. I'm in a difficult place between two. That is, there are two options. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, Paul says, I know you want me to stay around. And he says, I, I care about that. But he said, in my heart of hearts, I wouldn't mind. In fact, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. That's the far better place. And I want to say that I'm enjoying life. I am thankful for the gift of life. I hope you are. Life, my beloved, is a blessing from God, a great blessing from God. And we can make our lives sublime. Perhaps you've heard the old poem, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Yes, uh, my friends, you can live a good life and you can have a happy life. There's no one who will have a life that is carefree and hassle-free because we're living in a sin-cursed world, right? That's an optical illusion that, you're gonna, that your life will be uh, just 
smooth sailing all the way. Everybody will have trouble. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. But my friends, life is a blessing. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. Think about the sunset. As I drove home last night from Georgia after preaching this weekend, I noticed the sun in the my rearview mirror as it was setting, and it was a beautiful orange ball, almost rust red in its coloring. And as I saw it, I thought, my, what a beautiful world. I look at the countryside, and you know, the topography and the colors, and there is beauty in this world. And it's, just think about this, it's marred after the fall. Think about how beautiful it was before man sinned, and, you know, the consequences of sin encroached on the scene. How beautiful is this world? Life is wonderful. Think about how tasty food is. You ever tasted a Washington delicious apple? Or a South Carolina peach? Or a Georgia watermelon? You think about how tasty and how wonderful. Or Texas beef. I'll tell you, now there's some good eating. Think about what a blessing it is to be able to enjoy the pleasure of food. What about family? the uh, embrace of a loving spouse, a little child's developing and blossoming personality, the cute little things they say, the laughter of children playing together. Think about nature. Think about all of the experience. Life is good, my friends, and that should be our focus. Now, I know it's a veil of tears. I know life is hard. I know that there are burdens and pressures, but let's never lose sight of the fact that God has given us many daily benefits. He's loaded us with benefits. The Lord has been so good to me. And I think about our departed sister this morning who lived a wonderful life. She lived a good life, good, long, happy life, didn't she? I mean, she was happy. She was a woman of joy, but if you think that she had easy sailing and that she lived a plush and pampered kind of existence, then you need to learn a little bit more about her because she had many, many heartaches along the way. But yet life was good. She loved life. But my friends, that's the good. There's something better than the good. Do you know what it is? It's the Christian life. Let's talk about the good, the better, and the best. Life is good. Natural life is a blessing. The Christian life is a better life. For to me to live is Christ, says Paul. You see, he didn't only have natural life and enjoy natural life, but he was living the Christian life. And it's the abundant life, as Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus Christ can give you a life that is better than natural life. He can give a person a life in abundance with abundant peace and abundant joy and abundant strength and his felt presence along the way. What a wonderful life it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you agree? The hymn writer puts it like this, Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, he says, from his presence all divine, in a love which cannot cease, I am his and his mine. The second verse of that song says this, Earth around is sweeter green, heaven above is softer blue. Something lives in every scene, 
that Christless eyes have never viewed. May I say, dear friends, that the Christian says the world that is a lovely, beautiful world is even lovelier when Jesus Christ crowns it with his presence. Earth is sweeter green, heaven is softer blue, and something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. Do you understand what he's saying? Is that your experience? It is mine. Life is good. The Christian life is better. But my friends, there's something that's far better. Paul says, for to me to depart. Now I'm living with Christ, for Christ, in Christ, for to me to live is Christ. But he says, to leave this place and to go to another, to depart and to be with Christ is not just better. I'm already enjoying the better, but it's far better. It's the best. My beloved, the best is yet to come. I hope you know that. Do you remember the story in John chapter 2, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee when Jesus went to the wedding? Now, what, that life is good. What a happy, festive scene that is. A young couple getting married. Jesus, his mother are there, his disciples are there, other people are there. It's just a wonderful scene. It's a wedding. And there are few places or scenes happier than weddings. But suddenly they have a crisis. His mother comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, I'm not the one to solve this problem. He says, mine hour has not yet come. And Jesus resolves the issue, and he does it in a sort of clandestine way. He tells these uh, people around to go get some water pots. And whenever they bring the water pots to him, suddenly the water becomes wine. He turns the water into wine. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding feast of Canaan and Galilee. He turns the water into wine, and the person who's giving the wedding takes a sip of the wine, and he says, this is amazing. He said, usually, when someone is putting on a wedding, they give the best wine first, and then they give the cheapest wine, the worst, last, you know. I mean, when people have drunk the best wine, and they're happy, you know, a little bit inebriated, then he says they you know, they grade it down a little bit. But he says, you've saved the best until last. Think about that. Jesus saves the best till last. My friends, the best is yet to come. That's the way a believer looks at death. Now, again, this was true in the Old Testament. Job says, if a man die, shall he live again? I think I probably didn't finish the story about Edgar Allan Poe. His loved one had died. His fiance had died. Mr. Poe composes this poem, The Raven in which the sound or is used because of its doleful, somber note. You know, perched above the bust of Pallas, above the chamber door, there was a raven. And I asked the raven this question, shall I see a saintly maiden named Lenore? And the raven answered, nevermore, nevermore. Now, Poe had no hope, did he? He had no hope of a brighter day. And you know, the story is that he died a drunk in a Boston gutter later in his life. He was a troubled man. Brilliant, but yet deeply troubled because he didn't have a way to make sense of the sufferings of this life. He certainly didn't have a way to see the glory that is coming and a brighter world. His message was that there is no life after death if a man dies, shall he live again? 
That question haunted him, and his answer was, nevermore, nevermore. I want to tell you the Lord Jesus Christ has answered that question. If a man dies, shall he live again? His answer is not nevermore, but forevermore. My beloved, there is life after death. This world is not all that there is. Heaven is a real place. Our Lord Jesus Christ is, in a very real sense at this moment, enthroned at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. The disembodied souls of the saints who have gone before us are right there, right now. As awake and alert and conscious as they ever were in this world, my beloved, even though their bodies are sleeping in the dust, I dare say that their soul and their spirit lives on. The soul never dies. And one day... They will be reunited with their bodies which have decomposed, gone back to the dust from whence they came. Those bodies will be raised in the morning of the resurrection. They'll be changed, glorified, so that soul, body, and spirit, we will be sanctified holy. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I pray God your whole body and soul and spirit be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One day, my friends, even these vile bodies will be changed and fashioned like into his own glorious body. And we will be forever with the Lord. And you know, at death, what happens? You say, oh, it's just a, a full stop, a sudden stop. No, my friends, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, Right now, I'm living in a tent. This body's a tent. It's not a permanent, unchanging kind of entity. It's, it's decaying. You know, it can be taken down, just like you would take a tent down. If you go camping, you stay a couple of nights, which is probably two nights too long, and then you take the stakes up and roll it up, and you put it back in its container, and you take the tent down and move it somewhere else, right? How many of you like to live in a tent? I don't like to I don't even like to sleep in one for, you know, a night or two, but uh, I, I want to live in a, in a house, you know, with a firm foundation. Most people would agree with that. But uh, this body is not a permanent house. It's a tent. And, you know, it gets old. It's being disassembled. This outward man is perishing. That's true for you. Each of us is just a shadow of our former self, right? My hair hasn't always been this color. My voice hasn't always been this raspy. I'm trying to keep this vessel patched and keep it afloat as long as I can. But the fact is, my beloved, I'm fighting a losing battle because this tent, this tabernacle is being disassembled. If our earthly house of this tabernacle, that word means tent, is dissolved. Now he's just said at the end of chapter 4, this is 2 Corinthians 5.1. At the end of chapter 4, he says our outward man is perishing. That's true for each of us. And if it perishes to the point that we finally close our eyes in death, just as it happened to our sister this past Wednesday, I guess it was. He says, if our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we know that that's the ultimate end. Story is over. Everyone go home and have a nice day. Is that what he says? No, he says, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal, eternal in the heavens, and in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Now, Paul did not have a death wish, but he said, right now I'm burdened. He says, while we're in this tabernacle, we groan being burdened. That is, the load is heavy. Life is challenging, but he said, we yearn to be free from that. 
not that we would be unclothed. We don't want to be unclothed, that is, lest we should be found naked, but we want to be clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And then he says, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, right now, this body is the home of my soul. What happens when there's a separation of the soul from the body? Death happens. And at death, he says, to be absent from the body is not to cease to exist, but it is to be present with the Lord. Right now, the body is the home of the soul, but my friends, heaven is the home of the soul at death. At the moment that the eyes of the body close in death, the eyes of the soul at that very instant awake in the presence of Jesus Christ to behold him in all of his glory. Heaven is the eternal home, eternal in the heavens of the little child of grace. The soul never dies. I'll live on somewhere. When this life is o'er and I'm here no more, I'll live on somewhere that's the believer's perspective. Everybody doesn't share that, do they? That's why they don't understand songs like How Sweet to Die. That's why they don't understand words like Paul's to die is gain. Because death is such a painful thought that they don't even want to call it death anymore. They want to, you know, and no offense intended. But, you know, the whole focus of a funeral has changed in uh, our generation. In the last 20 years, I suppose, they don't even call it a funeral anymore. You know, we went from funeral to memorial service. As a preacher, you have to learn these things so that you, you know, don't needlessly offend people. Funeral to memorial service. So I usually just call it a memorial service. But even today, they've changed that. It's not just a memorial, but it's a celebration of this person's life. Now, I understand that. We are thankful for their life. We, we do want to remember it and to hit the high points and, and what a good life it was. But you know, some people's life may not need to be celebrated. <laughs> and the fact is that some people lived a rough life. Some people lived a hard life. Some people um, probably were not the best people that, you know, God has children that you wouldn't know that they were God's children probably by just looking at them. There have been some pretty rough characters that probably will be in heaven. Somebody said, when you get to heaven, you will probably be surprised at some of the folks that are there. But lest you turn and say, I can't believe he's here, just remember somebody might be surprised you're there <laughs> and that I'm there. God's grace can cover the chiefest of sinners. The thief on the cross, would you have ever dreamed that he would end up in heaven? But you know, Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That's the triumph of his grace. Grace has triumphed, and every one of us, by friends, that will be there, will be there not because we've lived a life that's worthy of celebration, but because we've been redeemed by the sovereign grace of God. That's the only hope for sinners. That whole focus, though, in celebrating a life, as opposed to the mourners. You know, in Jewish culture, they actually hired mourners to go about the streets for about a week. These people would just stand outside and walk the streets and wail. Now you think about a small community, all the neighbors would know, you know, that they've suffered a great loss. They didn't have Facebook to put it on, you know, to say I've lost a loved one. So they uh, put on this production. They hired mourners and people were, you know, they were, they cried. Today, people say, don't shed any tears. I'm sorry, dear friends, but you know, it's hard not to get invested and so it's hard not to care 
I've read pastoral manuals that say a pastor should never get too close to his congregation. Well, how can you pastor people and it be a shepherd-sheep relationship, not just a you know manager, other workers? How can you do that without caring? How can you truly get involved in people's lives without falling in love with them? I've, I've not found it possible. And it hurts to lose loved ones, doesn't it? Many of you have suffered that. You've lost spouses. You've lost uh, parents. You've lost siblings. You've lost uh, friends. Perhaps some have lost children. It's hard to imagine. It's hard, isn't it? You lost little ones. You say, Brother Mike, I just don't like it. But see, we have a faith that deals with reality. Okay? That makes sense. And I'm not afraid of it. I'm not living in terror of death. I want to keep it stayed off as long as I can, you know. I mean, if I, had, if I get a headache, I'm going to take a bare aspirin or a Tylenol. If I, you know, I'm going to try to do my best to be careful when I'm driving and I want... My loved ones, the, I tell my kids, you know, you be careful. You stay safe. My loved ones, we care about each other. But just know this, that death is not the ultimate tragedy that the world or the unbeliever or the secular thinker that doesn't have a biblical life and worldview thinks that it is. In fact, we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, right? So in the hymn that we mentioned, he says, I'll praise my Savior while I've breath. That's the Christian perspective. To me, to live is Christ. I'll praise my Savior while I've breath, and I'll praise him after death. You see? Even better than I can do right now. That's why to die is gain. I'll praise his matchless name on high, then oh, how sweet to die. I soon shall pass this veil of death when I shall lose my breath, and then my happy soul shall fly, then oh, how sweet to die. The hymn writer put it like this, Oh, call it not death when loved ones depart, or leave us in gloom and sadness of heart. Although we have lost, to them it is gain, for they've entered their home with Jesus to reign. It would not be right to ask their return and come back to earth, for their race is run. They've left this old world and now are at rest, for they are just gone to be with the blessed. Oh, call it not death, but life just begun. The river is past, their work here is done. The spirit set free has reached the blessed shore where sorrow and pain and sin are no more. The place our dear Lord has gone to prepare is all that the soul could wish over there, to leave this old world of sadness and strife and be with our Lord. Yes, this is real life. Oh, call it not death, but that blessed sleep, and never again to wake up and weep. The morning shall come, the body shall rise, and meet our dear Lord somewhere in the skies. Then cheer up, dear ones who sadly do weep, for happy are they in Jesus they sleep. Yes, they are now free from sickness and strife. Then call it not death, but eternal life. Yes, my friends, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Interestingly, Paul says, though, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul knew he was needed and wanted. 
for me to stay and not to die. And the fact is, he didn't die on this occasion. He thought he might. He's in prison again in Philippi. The fact is, Paul was released from prison, and he lived several more years, and then he was imprisoned again, and he did die later. But on this occasion, and he seems to have a sense that it's not the end. He says, I know it's possible, but he said, I have this earnest expectation and hope that I will be delivered back to you. He says, having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. So he He knows he could die, but he feels like he probably won't on this occasion. And the fact is, again, he didn't. He was released from jail. My beloved, you are needed. I want to say that to everyone here. To abide in the flesh is needful for you. I felt like our sister that has uh, been called home was needed. But uh, the fact is, she lived a long life again. But, you know, if if it was all emotional, you know, if I could just be ruled by my heart, I don't like to part with anybody, not just because I'm a pastor and want to keep the numbers of the church up. I mean, that's not my motive. You know, they're friends. This person's a friend, a dear friend, a loved one. I don't want to lose. I don't want to have to say farewell for a little while. But let's, as Christians, remember farewells are never forever. It's like the sibling walked by the casket of his brother and said, uh, Goodbye, brother. Goodbye forever. But then the man's wife followed him and said, Good night, darling. I'll see you in the morning. And my beloved, I want to tell you that that's the perspective of the believer. Let's never forget it. For the rest of you, though, to abide in the flesh is you're needed, okay? It's more needful for me for you to remain. I hope I'm needed. You know, I mean, everybody needs... Ultimately, we only need the Lord, okay? But doesn't it feel good to be wanted and needed by your brethren and sisters? Paul says, until though the Lord comes back, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Keep living for Christ, my friends, not fearing death, and doing all the good you can to as many people as you can for as long as you can until we are called home. And once we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, my beloved, what a day of rejoicing that will be.
Christ, who 